and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. Well, I am on a massive high still after being at Bicton for the big international horse trials last week. We'll be talking more about that later. But I absolutely love being at a proper three-day event again. There's just nothing like that rhythm of the week at a proper, proper three-day, the ebb and flow of tension. It is the reason I love my job, to be honest. So very happy to be back out. And as I say, we'll be talking more about it later. This week on the podcast, we chat to William Funnell about the great horses he's ridden, how the British national circuit could be rejuvenated, and what selection for the Tokyo Olympics would mean to him. To go there on a homebred, you know, to, to do what I do at the level I do on, on home produced horses is, is a one-off really, so um, it would be lovely to, to get there. In our news segment, we look back at Bicton, as well as talking about nutrition for riders and farrier safety. Finally, trainer Jason Webb gives his insight into how to train horses to ride out with others. Riding horses in company. I want to give you some tools that help you manage certain situations when you're out and about. Getting your horse used to more company and stranger environments. So that's enough of me. Pull up your girth and let's get started. Hi, I'm Jennifer Donald, show jumping editor at Horse and Hound. And this week, I'm delighted to welcome European team gold medalist and four-time Hickstead Derby winner, William Funnell, to the podcast. William, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Jen. Nice to speak to you as always. Um, so, William, you're recently back from St. Gallen in Switzerland, where the European Nations Cup series kicked off. Tell us a bit about what happened there. The heavens opened for you, didn't they? Yes, it rained sort of most of the day on Saturday torrentially and obviously was a bit of a worry with... So few shows, I mean, being on an Olympic selection, really with only the next, you know, in three weeks' time, the team's got to be picked. So obviously we haven't got an abundance of horses on the, that have got any five-star form, A, because obviously they're, they're, um, there aren't so many uh, five-star horses, and B, there's been no five-star shows. For example, I haven't jumped a five-star, a proper five-star with my horse for two years, really, since Windsor two wow. years ago. So it was, a, it was a little, it was a bit of a shock. And then um, uh, the ground became hard work. There were a few high scores. Um, it was sort of the, for selection, the form on that ground wouldn't be relevant to what we were looking for to pick also to go to to go out to Tokyo because that would be on sand. Sure, exactly. But you're obviously on the list of nominated entries and Olympics is sort of the big hope for you. What would it mean to compete at your first ever Olympics? Well, there's not a lot more left, so <laughs> yeah. I'm nearly down to the last chance. You know, I think Diamo's a, he's a lovely big horse, he's a careful big horse. Because he's a bit bigger, that's probably why the, the softer ground wouldn't over have suited him. So, you know, I, I was ready to jump, but also I was thinking, yeah, you know, probably in a way he's going to come down to you're as good as your last round. So it's going to be... For me and Harry and Alexandra Thornton, it's going to be a shootout and softball, really. Wow. And you're going to be as good as your last round. And uh, Emily Moffitt, uh, really, you know, Scott and Ben pick themselves anyway, you know, with, mm-hmm. with the way Scott's is, the way Ben's horse jumped, you know, he looks, you'd have to put him favourite to win a gold medal if he can c- continue the form. The horse looked fantastic. So you've got to say, but the one big difference this year, as opposed to London, Whoever is the third, you know, Scott and Ben have got depth. 
Um, you know, Scott's got one or two horses that would be ahead of, you know, the, the rest. So those two will be on. But the third man, you know, all scores count. So you can't carry one bad score. So it's going to be a very strange, you know, with the format, you need to take somebody that isn't going to have a, a bad round anyway. You yeah. Know, because, because then basically nobody's going to win a team medal. You know, you know, we were lucky, you know, at say in when I did win a team gold, Michael Whitaker was on the team and actually Scott and Ben with two, you know, Sanctos and we both jumped a good round alternate rounds, you know, so that isn't going to happen this time. The third man spot is going to be really, really important, which is what we're picking really now is a third man spot is in this is in obviously in my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you'd say Diablo has sort of all the right attributes, wouldn't you, as a championship horse? He's uh, he's super consistent. What are what are the best things about riding him? Yeah, you know, he's a big scopey horse. He's a lot more blood than you think, which probably if he wasn't, you'd think, well, should you be taking him to such a hot climate? But for a big horse, he's got plenty of blood. Mm-hmm. So I think he would manage in the in the heat. You know, you you you're also we all want to go. But, you know, the most important thing is Great Britain go there and win medals. That's it. So, and yes. Like you say, there could be a completely different result with the three-man format. Oh, it's going to so. be like we've never seen before because, <laughs> because you know, you only need to lose, you know, one, you know, one elimination, the team's gone. Yeah. You know, that's end the team medal. Whether the other two have jumped double clear, the third person goes in and has a stupid something. So it's going to come, you know, I think they've got to look at consistency. Yeah. And do you think the fourth man's going to play a role in um, in Tokyo? I think that I would definitely go as fourth man because I think you've got a good chance of jumping. I think now because you can swap the individuals first and if somebody mm-hmm. has a bad trip in the individual, you know, horse gets a fright, gets injured, anything like that, rider, you know, then you can swap. It's not like once they've trotted up and the competition started that you can't jump. Yeah. So you can end up missing the individual and doing the team. So no, you, you know, if the horse is going well, I would definitely be, I'd be happy to be third, but it'd be, uh, I'd still be happy to, to be there because I think you've got every chance of, of jumping at fourth man. Exactly. And like you say, there's, there's actually hasn't been that much sort of a build up to it. You know, the limit, there's been limited five-star competitions, you know, you don't know how the horse is going to react over there. So it's, uh, it could be interesting. For some of the people with the globals, it's been more, you know, they've had, they've had a bit more, you know, Scott's done 25 stars, so he's got plenty of form really to, to be able to say, to be able to go with, you know, and his world status says everything anyway. So, uh, so no, it would be the same for me to go there on a homebred, you know, to to do what I do at the level I do on on home produced horses is, is is a one off really. So um, it would be lovely to to get there. I mean, it's it's the dream, isn't it, for people to have a homebred that can reach championship level and and go all the way. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it must be a busy time for you right now. Have you got sort of foals on the ground? Is it uh, super busy for you at the Billy Studs? Donald Barmer, my partner, he actually is the one that deals with it with all that. So I've actually seen a foal apart from on a picture this year. So I was hoping perhaps <laughs> to go this afternoon or tomorrow afternoon and go and walk around a few foals because we've been so busy. We had a just before I went to St Gallen, we had an online auction of ten four-year-olds, and we've got another ten that sell the end of June Fantastic. Uh, in another online auction. So we film those jumping on Thursday, and you know so. My side of the production side is fairly flat out as well. So we're trying to sort of, at least it gets me away of the pressure of thinking, 
how much I need to perform in soccer. Yes. <laughs> There's a lot of other things. Welcome distraction. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I mean, there are Billy horses competing all over the world now as well. You must, it must make you immensely proud to see them going on to do such success. It was great to see Holly on Billy Serafine, Holly Smith win the seven and eight year old final on Sunday morning, you know, which is a horse my wife produced most of the way and we sold to uh, Ava Vernon's father last year. So it's lovely to see, to see the horses with, with good riders as well going on. And that's really what we need then is horses from the auctions and horses that we've sold going on and producing. And let's talk about some of the other superstars you've ridden and produced over the years. So right back in the early days, which were the horses that sort of helped you make a name for yourself? I mean, probably depends how far you want to go back, you know, as a, as a, as a, I've really enjoyed young horses from an early age and being with animals and whether it was farming and doing the sheep or whatever, I always enjoyed that. So it seemed natural. I'd had a little bit of success on ponies, although not, anything sort of super then Cyril lighted off of me a job so I went there at 16 when I left school and I was lucky enough at 17 to sort of have one trip to the year show turned up in a little lorry with a groom um, <laughs> there all day and, and ended up winning the Fox on the final which at that time was live on TV so it sort of made a bit of a name for myself but I was always worried about ending up chasing dreams and ended up with nothing. I think as a man you sort of think well you need a responsibility to, to earn a living it's easy to do that so yeah, uh, I actually, I actually then made a concert to buy a place at nineteen, and I was lucky. So I ended up, you know, getting more involved in earning a living, selling horses, breaking horses, mainly still young horses. And I had one very good horse I sold um, as a five-year-old called Comex, and then I, then I actually, the owner, I rode him for the owner, and as a seven-year-old, a good friend, as it turns out now, Morton Orson bought him. And he was really the first sort of good horse that I had that really could, um, you know, that I jumped Nations Cups with at 26, 27 then. Oh, brilliant. And uh, I was reserved at the Europeans with him in St. Gallen, actually. And uh, he was second in the richest Grand Prix in Europe at the time. And I was second in the horse in the Derby. I seemed to have a lot of seconds with him, but it, <laughs> it really started to make me believe that I could do it at that top level. So... Yeah, having having had a few seconds, it became a little bit frustrating then. And having trained Buddy Bun for Douglas Bun, and then um, I had an injury, a groin injury myself. And John Whitaker hopped on on Saturday and won the Higgs Derby on Sunday. And at that time, I'd never <laughs> won it, so oh no, I was starting to think. I was starting to think that things were stacking up against me. That I was, you know, when that happened, I was thinking, well, I don't think I'm ever going to win this. And then. Oh, no. Mondrian um, came along and was just, yeah, he was a fantastic horse, such a, you know, honest, brave horse. And he came along and won three derbies, so uh, two in a row and then another one. So that was, you know, and I did a championship. We jumped a few double clears in Super Leagues. And, yeah, yeah. He, he was a good, very good horse to me. And then, yeah, Billy Congo, the same, you know, was another five-star win. And actually globals I, I seem to have always had a lot of seconds perhaps not taking the last <laughs> chance because he was second in I was second in two globals with him would he have been your first sort of the real breakout homebred for you was he with the first one that sort of took you to the that top level yes yeah and he was always one even when when he was born or two three-year-old we always believed in him and 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 really he didn't he didn't fail he didn't lose down you know, he's a lovely horse, he's still breeding, you know, and then to go on and 
to win a derby on one of Billy Congo's sons because he was a stallion, you know, and he's still actually breeding. He's in Ireland actually this season. You know, he worked really well. Billy Buckingham, who won the Hicksy Derby and I went to the World Championships with, was the son of Congo, mm-hmm. after the King of Diamonds mare. So a lot of the Irish can see that he, he's really crosses well with the Irish mares. So um, there was a demand for him in Ireland. So he's breeding away in Ireland this season. Brilliant. Um, then there was Angela as well. I mean, you've you sort of had a good string at. Uh, yeah, I was very time. I was very lucky to have two really competitive Grand Prix horses, which is a little bit Buckingham and uh, Diamo being such big horses. Although neither of them were speed merchants, whereas actually with Congo and Angelo, you know, you could have a fee- feeling that they were competitive horses that were you know nimble and so that that it made it difficult not to come back from a show in one money because they were both careful, they both jumped clear rounds, and to have those two at the same time got me up into the top 30 in the world, and I managed to get into the Globals for a couple of years, which really gave you opportunity. I think in one season, Congo won 300,000. Wow. Then you're, then you're winning, you know, um, at that level, you you know, you're winning 75, 80, 100,000 in a pop, then it adds up a lot quicker than, you know, when you're, <laughs> for example, a three-star Grand Prix, Two weeks ago, I won 12,000. You know, that takes yeah. a lot of, uh, you've got to win a lot to get up to the high brackets when you look at the high values of the horses. So, no, I was very lucky at that time. And it was, um, you know, now with the globals, you've nearly got to be in the top 10. And the, I, I actually gave my horses a break at the end of last year because I thought well, there aren't any big shows, no money to sort of be winning. Mm-hmm. And the opportunity to give them a break, although there were tours and some shows that did go ahead and actually. Now they've unfrozen the list. That's for the last list. I think I dropped 100 places. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> because, obviously, as although they froze it, if you weren't actually competing, you've got nothing to replace those points with. So the people that were out even doing the, the two and three stars winning points. Yeah. And that is, it. That is a little bit of the... The problem, I guess, as, as I get more, you know, I, I enjoy producing the young ones more and... I think you're forced in with the world rankings to have to do show after show after show mm-hmm. to, to get high enough for the rankings to be able to do show after show after show. I'm at a stage, it'd be lovely to have, to do championships, to do Nations Cups and the big shows. But actually, um, you know, with, with Brexit, it has made everything that much more difficult to be able to get away. So you almost need, when you cross the channel, for example, to bring mine back and forward. My horse has stayed out after... St. Gallen, and I shall have to go out and ride them rather oh, than coming back because it would have cost me two and a half, three thousand pounds oh. just to get my horses back and out again. Oh, my just goodness. because of the cost of, of the vets, the ferries, the paperwork, the people to order the papers, the, you know, the, the whole thing now is, is it makes traveling very difficult. And the same for me with having a 100 horses in work at home, auctions going on, it's very difficult for me to be away from home ad infinitum if you know what I mean which is nearly yeah. what's going to happen unless we can try and get something better going in the UK yeah exactly and every time I sort of speak to riders at the moment there's you know there's COVID tests trying to remember what when you have to do it and, and getting all the paperwork ready it's a it's a different problem it's, at the moment tra- traveling it? is very difficult you know today I've done my two-day test and then I have to do another one on Saturday wow um 
so it's you know and actually you get to the check-in and you when we left to go to St Gallen we were nearly they nearly didn't list on the plane because we didn't have a we didn't have a visa oh no you know now not only Covid it's actually the fact that we're not Europeans anymore we're not part of the the union so it makes it's a double whammy really as in you can't then we're forced to have to stay in Europe more but you can only stay for 90 days out of 180 and there isn't a way to get a visa yet. That's it. Such a so nightmare for you. It's um, it's going to be a tough one going forward. Hopefully things become more simplified. Yeah. And back at home, have you got some nice ones coming through? Which are the horses you're most excited about at the moment? Yeah, I mean, uh, it was a busy weekend last week. Lottie Tut, who rides for us, is she's still a young rider, so she jumped her first uh, young rider's team with Billy Angelette she jumped four and clear brilliant and Caberg and Lottie's worked for us for a couple of years she's worked really hard with the young ones mm-hmm. she's really improved and and you know I think she's going to be a, a, she she is a, a very good rider she's super with the young ones as well and now she's proven she can do the next level so hopefully um we've 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 got some very exciting uh, young ones coming through which is always nice because you know fortunately or unfortunately the business is you know producing and you know when the right person comes along the right time to sell is when somebody wants to buy exactly yeah <laughs> unfortunately that's not always the time that you want to sell it but yeah um yeah as you say though business is business isn't it you've got to keep the wheels turning so um yes, exactly and finally, we all enjoy the columns you've been writing in Horse and Hand. And there's been a really positive reaction to your suggestion recently that we start running one day internationals at our county shows. Just fill us in a bit about your thoughts about giving our national circuit a bit of a boost. I mean, basically, as I've already said about the computer, the ranking list is so important in our sport now, which 10 years ago it wasn't. So mm. generally, you know, the county shows are the one place that we can where we bring show jumping to the general public going to end, end up with a big crowd around the ring and hopefully we can show them entertainment. But unfortunately, over the last five or six years, because of the ranking point situation, it's made it really difficult for the top show jumpers to do the county shows. So the standard has gone down. County shows aren't getting the entries. The competition isn't good enough to show entertainment. So we're not doing our sport any favours. In the one place we are taking show jumping to the general public because... We have become very singular, as most sports have, in the fact that we're not on national television. You know, we're all on live streaming. And actually, unless somebody's involved in the sport, how do they know to go to live streaming to watch global TV? So I think the county shows are one thing. I was thinking, well, what have we got that the rest of Europe hasn't? And actually, the county shows is something Ireland still has, but something Mm -hmm. they've never seen in Europe. We've got 15 or 20 county shows that, if we could get a one-day international, it would cut the cost of having to do stable security. It would make it within the realms of possibility because to turn them all into three-star internationals wouldn't work just for the, because the cost would be prohibitive. Yeah. So basically, if we can make the one-day international work, we're two-pronged. We can, we've got our own way to get ranking points to our younger riders, even our senior riders like myself, we can we can produce horses in the UK and we can start the world ranking list. Yeah. And we're actually going to rejuvenate our county show circuit. We're going to bring more people to want to watch our sport and enjoy our sport, want to ride, want to show jump. 
you know, we learned so much. I learned so much from watching John Whitaker, watching Harvey Smith and David Broom at county shows when I was a junior, you know, and that was all, basically, that's where we all started. Our juniors are going to miss out on all that unless we can implement something like that. And where do you learn? You know, basically, you learn, you learn to be the best by watching the best. Exactly. You know, you don't learn enough from watching a second-class rider who wins in a, in a second-class show. I think is our only chance of, of show jumping not dwindling back to nothing in the UK. So it's two-pronged. We, we rejuvenate the county shows. We actually bring the standard up nationally um, because we get so few. You know, yes, our top riders are riding London, they're riding Hicksie, but other people don't get a chance to ride against them. The county shows, we can do that. They would get a chance. Scott Brash, Ben Mayer, I'm sure when they haven't got a big show, they'd bring their horses to, you know, to jump in a ranking at these county shows. And the positive thing after the uh, my column in the Horse and Hound, uh, Suffolk County rang me and said, right, fantastic. What do you want us to do? You know, we're, we're, we'll oh, get the county shows together and try and do something to do. I said, well, really, it's over to the BS. You know, Ian Graham and these guys, you know, I've tried to push as hard as I can. We need to keep the wheels turning. We've got a perfect opportunity now to get this set up for next year because obviously this year, hopefully we're back to normal and we can get yeah. it set up if we start with six county shows or, and then... When, as I said, already Great Yorkshire and Royal Highland have got enough money in their Grand Prix to be ranking classes. So basically, if we pull the, the money from the other county shows into the ranking classes, we can still do it at those shows. And, and I'm sure we, you know, when, when we understand what we need to be, there are going to be, be people that will help to, you know, to sponsor and see that having had, got the general public there, yeah, there, there is going to be mileage in people sponsoring and whether it be car manufacturers even the billy stud promoting our auctions it's difficult to find places now with covid to get uh, messages to the public and uh, yeah you can't ask for a better shop window than a, a county showground to promote everything no, really you know, and what you've got to remember is is we have got such a healthy sport basically yes yeah, hard work riding but actually coming through people aren't kids aren't stood on street corners you know doing stuff they couldn't shouldn't be doing they're actually working hard they're working with animals they're working with nature and it's a very healthy sport to be involved in you know unless people see it how are we going to promote it because we need to you know right down to you know the whole sport goes right down to grassroots level but we need to be healthy at the top so let's hope they do something and we can push the fei hard and and make it for me we we have to make it happen yeah, and now's the time. I think we've both sort of talked about it, isn't it? Now there's never been a better time to to make these no. kind of changes. So um, hopefully it'll happen. Brilliant. William, thank you so much. It's been a wonderful insight as always. So thank you for joining us on the podcast this week. No problem. Nice to talk to you as always. Thanks, Jen. So to kick off our news segment today, I am joined by my colleague Gemma Redrup. Gemma and I were both at Bicton International Horse Trials supported by Cheddington last week. We were reporting there. This is the fixture that replaced Bramham this year and took over those three four-star classes. And it was a massive feast of sport. I absolutely loved it, Gemma. I had such a good time. How about you? Uh, Exactly the same. It was so exciting. It was just great to be back out at an event with such an atmosphere as well obviously there were spectators there and the weather was amazing which helped and it was just a really great competition 
It really was. And I just love being in that press office. You know, it's 18 months since I've been in a press office. The events I went to last year didn't have press offices, understandably, with COVID. And I really enjoyed just sitting there with the other journalists and photographers and people shouting random questions and helping each other and getting a bit of banter. I loved the whole thing. Right, let's talk about the sport rather than about what a nice time we had. Let's kick off by talking about the four-star short section. You followed this section most closely, Gemma, and it was the section that was effectively, although it wasn't called this, but it was effectively the final trial for the British Olympic team for Tokyo. Tell us what happened and what do you think the impact is going to be on British selection? Well, ultimately, Tom McKeown and Toledo de Cursa won. They were class all week. They weren't leading the dressage. Laura Collett in London 52 led the dressage. But they had actually, I watched, when I watched it, it was so unlucky. They, there was a, a wall in the show jumping, and which you probably don't see a lot of, especially sort of British eventing competitions. And London just literally tapped this wall and the tiniest brick fell out of it. So that put her slightly down the leaderboard going into the cross country. But... Um, Tom was class, so he finished on his 23 dressage, bang on the optimum time. Kitty King was second on Vondry Biat's, um, just 0.1 of a penalty behind Tom, actually. And then Ros Cantor was third on All-Star B. They were four seconds over the time cross-country, so they added 1.6 time faults to their 23 dressage. But it, it was just a who's who, really, and so competitive and, and really exciting. Yeah, it really was. And I guess I, I've always thought Tom was very much in the top group for the Olympics, so I don't think he necessarily needed to um, to prove that. But I feel that if Tom's horse has a weakness, and uh, you know, it's harsh to say he has a weakness at all, he's a world gold medalist and a five-star winner, but if he has a weakness, it would be the dressage. But actually, he was very, very good in that phase mm. and sat equal fourth after the dressage phase. So I feel like he showed us what he always does in the other two phases and probably performed above his form in the dressage. And I would be very surprised now if I am not don't see Tom named on that team. I felt like Kitty King, with that second place, pushed herself a little bit higher up the pecking order she obviously was best of the brits of the 2019 euros but i feel has been a little bit less prominent since then so i feel like she's muscled in there into that top group and i just don't know what's going to happen i it's such a tough call for the selectors yeah i definitely would not want to be them um i was talking to piggy march um after her round on sunday on britford at innocent who also went really well and she said that basically they've got enough people to basically take three teams to the Olympics, let alone just one. And and the general consensus was that nobody would want to be a British selector right now. Although it's a great position to be in, it's crikey, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to be one of them. No, it's so tough. And uh, when we were talking to the riders all week, you and I both were uh, asking questions about how they were feeling about riding under the pressure and about Olympic selection. And it's the kind of question that makes me squirm a bit, but the answers were interesting. And it's just clear how much everybody wants it. It's an obvious thing to say, but um, we are spoiled in the British camp at the moment. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what the selectors come up with. Moving on to the four-star long which is sort of the showcase class, although maybe possibly slightly eclipsed by the by the short this time. Mm-hmm. But it's always a great class for sort of young horses coming through. We had some five-star campaigners in it this year with, with a lack of other options, but it was won by Nicola Wilson with JL Dublin. They led from pillar to post. It was an impressive performance in, in, a, in a close class. Um, 
The cross country was influential across all the sections. Designed by Helen West, the Bicton organiser, it was her second time designing at four star level. What did you think of the course, Gemma? Oh, it was great. It was definitely very challenging. Um, there's a lot, a lot of terrain at Bicton. It's beautiful down there in Devon. And I mean, the course was great and it was it was really exciting to see something that riders could really get their teeth into. Um, I think the general consensus was it was perhaps not a four star first timer course in either the short or the long, but it, it you know, it was really exciting to watch. Um, and yeah, I loved it. Yeah, me too. It was definitely a strong course. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting was that when I was walking it, I saw some fences that looked very much like an old fashioned badminton or burly fence, you know, a big tree trunk or a parallel built of tree trunks. And then I saw a few fences that were quite modern and almost European looking just in their construction. You know, there was a fence that was called the T on the mound, which is what it sounds like. There was a strut up the middle and then a, a sort of, um, you know, a, a horizontal bar with, with greenery coming out the top of it. And that's just not a fence. I think we'd have seen in Britain maybe five years ago. It's something I'd expect to see at Le Moulin or Poe or one of those continental events. And I wonder whether there was sort of a deliberate attempt to, to, to make a really great variety and prepare horses for championships, whether it's Tokyo or the Europeans. But yeah, it was a, it was a real strong course. As you say, a lot of people didn't feel it was maybe quite right for their horses at the, at, the, at the level that some of the less experienced horses did have problems. Some of them got round and took some long routes and were nursed round with, with excellent riding. Who impressed you, Gemma? We haven't talked about the under 25s yet, and I'm sure we will. But maybe if I ask you this question, that will lead into this. Tell me about a young rider who impressed you this weekend. Oh, it has to be Bobby Upton who uh, won the under 25 sections. She's 22. She's super consistent. I've sort of been following Bobby's career since I went to um, Montalabretti, the junior and young rider Europeans in Italy in 2016. And that's when I sort of first interviewed Bobby um, and followed her career sort of ever since then. And she just comes up with the goods every single time. And yeah, last weekend was sort of no exception. She she won on Cannavaro and was uh, fourth on her other ride, Cola, as well. Um, and she just, she's super, she just seems super cool. She's a really smart, smart jockey. And she had a really good round in the four star short as well on Magic Roundabout. So she's definitely one that I think everybody should be looking out for um, in years to come. Mm. And I'm going to mention the two jockeys who were second and third in that class and actually put in very, very good performances too. So Heidi Core is riding in her own first four-star long, let alone her three horses. She had three horses in the class, her first four-star long, they all completed. They were all in the top 14. And my favourite horse of the week was the horse she was second on, a little mare called Russell Zed, who is out of a Darko mare. She was only small, but she was super feisty and just got in there for Heidi and, uh, and and did the job. Also got to mention Yasmin Ingham. She had a less experienced but very smart horse in Banzé de Loire, who we know was the winner of that eight and nine year old championships at Burnham Market last year. And she took the very grown up decision to take a couple of long routes on him cross country because it was his first four star long. She was the dressage leader and she sacrificed that lead in doing so, but didn't let her competitiveness sort of get the better of producing the horse in the right way. She thinks a lot of him. She was on the podcast last week and, uh, and we're saying 
that uh, she thinks he's a horse for the next Olympics the, for Paris 2024. So yeah, she rode she rode really nicely. Dressage leader finished up third. So shout out to both Heidi and Yasmin as well as Bubby. So we've talked about the young riders who impressed us. Gemma, give me a horse as well that you loved over the weekend and was really impressed by. Um, I think if, in terms of young horses, it would be um, the horse that Ros Cantor was runner-up on in the four-star long section called Lordship's Graffalo. He's only nine, finished on his 30.6 dressage score. And if you look back at his record, both nationally and internationally, he is so consistent already and has, is definitely one to watch, I'd say. That is exactly the horse that I was going to name. <laughs> so no, that's all right. Um, yeah, completely agree. And he's got an interesting story behind his breeding as well that we wrote about on the Horse and Hound website and is in the magazine this week. So do have a look at that if you haven't already. I'm going to pick a different one since you mm. have mentioned Lordship's Graffalo. I'm going to go for Sarah Bullimore's homebred Coraway, who finished sixth. He is on the British Olympic Reserve nominations list and really justified that spot with his, with his smart performance. And I know when I was talking to Sarah, she said it's lovely to be thought of for the Olympics and sort of have that feather in his cap. Realistically, her aim is the Europeans this year, and he definitely hasn't done his chances of going to that European Championships any harm with his performance last weekend. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. He, he was great to watch as well, yeah. Well, it was such a fantastic weekend of sport. We tried out some new technology as well at Horse and Hound and some new things in the way that we were reporting, which led to Gemma and I doing a crazy amount of work for our website. I think we pushed out 44 stories between us over the weekend, Gemma. Is that right? Yeah, that's definitely right. It was it was busy. It was frantic, but I love the buzz of it and it and it all worked as well, which is it's great when technology works. It definitely is. And we learned a lot ahead of Tokyo. We're planning to use some of the things that we did at, at Bicton to bring you the best possible coverage from the Olympics. And I'm so excited now that we're really feels like we're back into top class sport and moving yeah. forwards, all eyes on Tokyo. Thank you, Gemma, for joining me on the weekend. It was so much fun and for coming on the podcast and giving your views. It was great fun and yeah, thank you, Pippa. So I'm joined now by two of my colleagues from the Horse and Hound News Desk. We have our news editor, Eleanor Jones. What have you been up to, Eleanor? Oh, I think same as everyone else, dealing with going from January to July within about a week <laughs> and um, stinking of fly spray at all times and hosing off horses and actually get, and actually really pleased to see the hay growing this year, uh, which is a big difference from last year. <laughs> You're getting ahead of yourself there. It's, uh, it is July weather, although it's not yet July, but it does feel like <laughs> it definitely this week. And we also have with us our news writer, Becky Murray. How about you, Becky? Well, I'm actually recently back to work following a nice fortnight off. Um, I did the North Coast 500 with my partner and did some wild camping on the West Coast of Scotland, which was quite the adventure. Um, so I had a lovely lady looking after my girls while I was away and I think she found my Shetland ponies as amusing as I do. So, But back to it now and yes, I'm enjoying this good weather. So I'm actually threatening to bath Shetland ponies this week. <laughs> and I have to ask Becky, 500, did you walk 500 miles, 500 kilometres? What's the 500 standing for? So, the North Coast 500 is 500 miles around the sort of northwest coast and around to the northeast of Scotland. Um, so we did it in a car. Um, many people do it on like, motorbikes. We actually did seem to see some very keen cyclists, but I wouldn't fancy that. 
Um, so yeah, we did it in a car and we'd stop and sort of set up camp. Um, we had no idea where we were staying each night. So that was great for my partner who found this very fun. I found it slightly stressful, but no, it was great. The views were stunning. So something different. Surely next time you should walk it just so you can say you have walked 500 miles. <laughs> <laughs> we know a song about that. Or you could do it on your horse, Becky. Do people do it on horseback or is that the path's not suitable? It wouldn't be suitable. And actually, I didn't really see, I thought I'd see lots of horses, like just in general. But no, there's really not many horses in the West Coast, actually. So just sheep, lots of sheep. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we're not going to become the horse and sheep podcast. So we are moving <laughs> swiftly onwards. Eleanor, we have a story in this week's magazine about rider nutrition and its impact on performance and safety. What was the spur for this story? Yeah, so this was Imogen Murray, who um, a top eventer who has come, had success at badminton and Burley, and she was riding in a novice section, a uh, little downham, and and had a fall from her horse, and, and she told us it it wasn't really a major fall; it was quite an innocuous one, and she she suffered concussion. And she's had a look back at the video and, and sort of thought, you know, this isn't something that I would normally fall off in that situation. But she thinks her reactions didn't look as sharp as perhaps they normally would have been. And she's wondered whether this was related to low blood sugar because, she, you know, looking back, she'd ridden five horses. That was her fourth cross country round and she'd had breakfast, but maybe that wasn't enough. Mm, okay. And what's sort of the scientific evidence and thinking behind sort of um, performance and blood sugar? So we spoke to we spoke to a, perf a performance nutritionist, and he is saying, you know, if we always treat our horses as athletes, but actually, if we're not fueled properly, we could end up letting the horse down. And he said there's scientific evidence on the links between performance and and what you consume. Uh, he referred to some studies about even just being very very slightly dehydrated, you can have a, a, a measurable performance decrease. It affects your strength, reaction times, decision makings. Um, yeah, really really interesting talking about that. You should do fueling the day before with a carb-rich diet, and then on the competition day itself, it's just top that up from what you've taken in yesterday mm, it's so interesting to hear this because this ties into something which is also in the magazine this week so we decided around the olympics to try to set up some hero to hero interviews where we would ask top olympians in our sport to talk to olympians in another sport it was a bit of an ambitious project and uh, we hope some more of them are going to come off but the one that has come off was between andrew hoy the event rider and katie marchant the team gb cyclist and i just loved being a fly on the wall in their conversation it was a real privilege to, to set that up and be involved in it and katie said that she has three coaches and one of them is sort of the person who has the expertise on track craft and riding a bike another one manages her strength and conditioning and all her gym work which is actually the majority of her training and then she also has a physiologist who just works with her well-being and it's just not really the way that we look at our riders as athletes but there's so much emphasis on that in other sports isn't there yeah yeah that's really interesting actually and I'm sure that that's how it is in in so many other sports um I know when when we were talking about this story in our news meeting we were saying you know from my experience if I am going to a show I don't like eating before I've ridden so I'll have breakfast but then sometimes actually if I don't jump till four o'clock in the evening I can go eight o'clock in the morning till eight in the evening without having anything to eat and that probably isn't very good um, and it really this story has really made me think okay I need to think about what can I eat that will you know keep I'm, I'm not eventing I'm only show jumping but it's still it's still the the effort and the performance so what mm. can I eat that will be good fuel without making me feel you know jumping around a course of jumps with 
lunch bouncing around in my stomach <laughs> mm, and I think it's a nervous thing for a lot of riders as well they don't like to eat if they're nervous and they feel a bit sick I'm a greedy gut so I don't like to miss my lunch <laughs> even if I'm going to go cross country but I would think about what time I had it you know I would tend uh, I would always have breakfast and I would maybe if I was going to sort of start eventing at one o'clock I would have uh, maybe an egg roll in the car at 11 or 10 30 on the way so that I'm not eating too close to when I'm riding but I would would keep eating and sometimes maybe take a smoothie with me as well as something that I can just sort of nibble on in, in liquid form through the day. So definitely one for riders to think about and maybe seek further advice on if they think it might be impacting their performance. Thank you, Eleanor. And thank you to Imogen Murray as well for coming to us with that story and being so open about something that we don't talk about a lot in equestrian sport. Becky, you have been looking at a story this week about farriers being injured while shoeing horses. And this has come from a survey by the British Farriers and Blacksmiths Association. What were the results of that survey? Well, this is the first time the organisation has done this type of survey and they had 349 responses from farriers and apprentices. Now, the results showed that 76% of participants reported a minimum of one injury requiring hospital treatment during their career, 32% had visited a hospital three or more times, and 38% had reported a lasting physical impairment. One of the questions looked at suggestions for potentially avoiding accidents, and 22% said being pre-warned of known behaviours, and 46% said improved handling could prevent these accidents. Mm, and you started to touch on my next question there, Becky, which was around the reasons for farriers getting injured. I know you chatted to some of your interviewees about that. What did they say? Well, I spoke to the president of the British Farriers and Blacksmiths Association, Craig Darcy, and he said over time, behaviour patterns in some horses has changed. That could be horses being exercised and worked less, or young horses not being quite prepared enough for being seen by the farrier. Now, he did sort of say, you know, everyone realises it is an industry that is never going to be without risk. But I mean, interestingly, when asked to consider the most serious injury sustained, 60% of the survey um, participants cited equine behaviour was the cause. Another farrier in the story, Mark Aikens, who lost finger after it became trapped under a horse's hoof, said communication between farriers and clients is really sort of vital in reducing these injuries. Yeah, and I think those are high numbers that you quoted in the survey, Becky. And, you know, we all think of shoeing as a, as a physical job, but more in terms of sort of strain on, on backs and, and, and always being out and about and doing that quite physical job rather than actually injuries. What is the association planning to do with this information now? What are the next steps? Well, this survey is going to form the basis of a campaign. It's in the initial stages, but it's potentially going to be looking at owner education and also how apprentice farriers are trained in the colleges in terms of looking at risk management and sort of managing that situation they're in. So the campaign is hopefully going to be raising awareness on both sides and we'll have more information on this as it develops in the future. Great. I look forward to following that story and hopefully seeing some improvements and less farriers having to go to hospital and suffering these serious injuries. Thank you, Becky. And to you too, Eleanor. So now we're going over to Jason Webb, a trainer who specialises in starting young horses and retraining those with problems. Born in Australia, Jason is now based in Kent 
and his online training service at yourhorsemanship.com means owners around the world can learn and benefit from his techniques. Over to you, Jason. In this episode, we're going to talk about riding horses in company. And I want to give you some tools that help you sort of manage certain situations when you're out and about. So to start off with, as with everything, you would get your horse used to low energy environments when you're out in company. So with one horse in a familiar environment and you build from there. So incrementally getting your horse used to more company and stranger environments. But as you go along, you may come across some issues. If you're riding out and you find that your horse is really great in the lead, but struggles to to stay behind the horse that you're riding with, they get sort of fizzy and a bit hot and are searching to go, go to the front. The first thing to do, for a little while anyway, is ride in front. Don't make a big fuss of it, particularly if you're introducing a horse to company. Just allow them to, to be in front for a while and relax, and then get your the person in company to be able to ride up alongside you. And then I would just sort of alternate as you're hacking along, just checking your horse in behind and coming up to the other side of the horse and riding along again. If they get too bothered by by this movement, then just allow them to spend some time in front. With this problem, it does come down to being able to control your horse's paces as well. So a good exercise, apart from that one I just spoke about, alternating positions in a sort of a circular fashion as you walk along from left to right, is being able to slow your horse within a pace and allow them to walk on. Now this must be done in, a, in an environment that your horse is comfortable with first. And generally I practice this going away from home when I'm hacking with company or without. On, when I'm on my way home, I always find the most comfortable place for my horse and allow them to be there because a lot of problems with riding in company and hacking in general come from holding your horse up when you're on the way home. So practicing that basically dressage, sort of getting your horse to walk slowly, find a slower rhythm in the walk and then walk out is a great exercise to practice and will help you um, when you're hacking in company or alone for that matter. Another little thing that I like to do when I'm uh, hacking in company and my horse gets a little bothered by being uh, behind another horse. I might set myself to go for a ride of 100 metres down the track. That's as far as I want to go because I know when I'm behind a horse, my horse gets bothered, gets anxious. I'll start out behind the horse, feel my horse get anxious, and I'll ask the person I'm riding with, so you need somebody who's understanding to do this with you, I'll ask the person I'm riding with to stop and I'll allow my horse to go past that horse. When they get in front of the horse, I'll start to ride them around in circles, left and right. And I'll do this for a minute, maybe. 
and then I'll ride them back past the horse, the horse that is standing patiently for me, and position them where I want them to be behind the horse. Now, when I ask them to stand here, they may choose to walk off again to get back in front of the horse. All I simply do is repeat the process of a few circles walking around in front of this horse and go back. And I do this until I can stand with a loose rein behind the horse in front. Once I can do this, I ask my friend to walk off again. Now, the idea of this exercise is that when I'm behind the, the horse that I'm in company with, I don't hold them. I allow them to choose to stay there. If they choose not to stay there and choose to go in front of the horse that I'm in company with, then I make it slightly awkward for them by doing some small circles and figure of eights and move them from left to right. And then I take them back behind the horse and leave them again. In doing this, I'm allowing my horse to make the decision and decide that if I go in front of the horse that I'm in company with, I've got to do these, this movement, these circles and serpentines, and it's quite tight and it's quite awkward. Or I can choose to stay behind this horse I'm in company with, and it feels like I've got space. I can relax. The horse in front of me isn't going anywhere. So maybe this is the best place to be in this situation. So that's just a couple of little exercises that can help with that horse that won't stay behind another horse in company. Give it a try and see how you go. Another problem is the opposite of this. And this is when your horse won't lead when you're in company with another horse. And this comes down to more basic training. The root cause of this problem is that your horse is behind the leg, i.e. when you use your leg on your horse, their first thought isn't to step forward. There's a gray area there. And in that gray area, do I want to step forward or not? In that gray area, your horse has learned that they can go forward or maybe they don't have to. So how does this gray area come about? It comes about from inconsistencies when you're using your leg to ask for forward. So when you use your leg, sometimes your horse responds by going forward and sometimes they don't or there's no real push in that forward. So when they're faced with a situation where they've got doubt or they're not sure, they don't look to you to be the leader and follow you past, in this case, a horse in company. What they look to do is just stay where they feel comfortable and that's behind a lead horse. So the real crux of this problem is being able to get your horse off the leg and doing exercise and getting crisp responses to a forward movement or to a forward aid in, to start off with, a familiar environment. So I hope that's been useful for you. Good luck.
Thank you, Jason. Next week, Jason will be back. We'll also be speaking to secondary school teacher turned leading show horse producer Vicky Smith. And of course, we'll look at all the week's news as normal. Thank you for joining us on the Horse and Hand podcast. Do make sure you hit subscribe in your podcast app so that you don't miss an episode. Talk to you next week. The Horse and Hand podcast is a Media Cage production.